if a brand is engaging with an up and coming talent or or they are integrated in and therefore underwriting an up and coming piece of content, right? If you love that person, that talent, or you love that content, then you're going to love that brand. That was Brendan Gall, the Global Chief Content Officer at Universal McCann. And these are the Brandwagon Interviews. Brendan, thank you so much for being here on Brandwagon. Thank you. Actually, thank you for having us in your office here in lovely New York. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, we're, uh, we're really proud of it. What is your favorite dessert? My favorite dessert? I know that you, I know that you love desserts. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I love desserts. Um, I mean, first thing that comes to mind is cheesecake. Cheesecake? Yeah. Any particular kind or like? Uh, from a diner. From a diner? Yeah, diner cheesecake. Any particular diner? Mm-mm. No, just you just... You get in there. Diners are, <laughs> they're, uh, they're closing, which sucks, you know? Really? Like, yeah. You know, I've, been, I've lived in New York for a really long time, and I've had my favorite diners, and, and they seem to all be closing, you know, getting squeezed out, high rents. It sucks. That does suck. Yep. Yeah. That's too bad, because I feel How like- am I going to find the cheesecake? How are you going to find the right cheesecake? Right. And I feel like diners kind of define New York in a way, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and everyone has I their like own- my favorite spots, yeah. Yeah. You know. I just rediscovered um, one- near the office, uh, which is funny. I used to go to this diner back like 18 years ago, yeah. and uh, I forgot it was there, and I was walking by it. I was like, oh, my God. And now it's kind of the spot. Okay. The team knows me, though. It's like if I'm having a day, they're yeah. like, hey, let's go to the diner. What's that place? Andrew's Coffee Shop. Andrew's Coffee on Shop. On 35th and 7th. Cool. Cool. Um, Dan, what's the name of the diner that you got married in? Mumford & Sons? <laughs> <laughs> Russ and Daughters. Russ and Daughters. Yes. I was close. <laughs> They're doing great, right? Russ and Daughters? I guess, right? I, I, it's not my impression. I don't know. Iconic. Yeah, iconic. 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 I love brand. a diner. So I'm super excited that you're here with us on Brandwagon. And at Wistia, a lot of our customers are you know, B2B. There are some B2C customers in there, but it's a lot of small, medium-sized businesses. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out how to do brand, what brand is, how to invest in brand. Brand can feel like this foreign thing. And I'm so excited that you are here because for me, you, are, you represent giant B2C, cool brands. Brand is everything. It is how these companies thrive is by having the right brand. And someone walks down an aisle and they pick a different product Mm -hmm. because of what you do. So I cannot wait to jump into this conversation with you. I feel like I have so much to learn. And it's it's so cool to be here with you. Thanks. I'm psyched to be here. Um, Thanks thanks for coming down. Oh, yeah. So fun. And uh, so first of all, what's your, what's your story? I know you have like an interesting story for how you've ended up where you are now. Yeah, I think it's a, I've had a non-traditional kind of career trajectory. But then again, I think about like what we're doing today in the world with, with content and advertising and brands and like none of it's traditional, none of it's the old way. So uh, I, I think it makes sense that I would, I would come to this in a, a roundabout you know, path. I uh, came to New York to um, uh, go to film school. I went to Pratt in Brooklyn, uh, art and design school that had a, a media arts and film program. And, you know, as, as life has it, you, you want different things. I, I was in school, it was going well, but I wanted to get an apartment and move off campus. And that means that I needed a job. Yeah. And I wound up getting a job at this jeans and t-shirt store in Soho that was actually the, the model store and the first store for the brand Armani Exchange. So and did you did you know that when you took the job? I didn't. Not really. Like it was just a, like this is a retail shop. It was like a retail like, shop. Okay. It was cool. Like people were like, "Hey, check this okay. out." And honestly, like I, I came from like Pennsylvania suburbs. I, I even if it, I wouldn't even know the difference. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, so there there I am, and you know, I was always really involved in theater uh, as well um, through high school and then and then college and. This is before internet sales and before there were really like big web presences from brands. And Mr. Armani was in the store a bunch. And that's insane. It was pretty insane. That's ridiculous. Yeah, (laughs) uh, completely ridiculous. And he was really interested in creating an experience for customers that felt like his home, you know, and, and he had designed the store in that way. You know, it had the, like the same floors as his, as one of his homes. And the ceiling was reminiscent of the train station in Milan. And it it had all these like really cool cultural cues from Italy and from, from kind of his aesthetic and his experience. And these are, these are all things around the products, right? Yeah. So the products are jeans and t-shirts, right? Predominantly. Right. But you're talking like He's he's focused on, and I guess you all are also focused on 
the space itself. Well, the the overall brand experience, the brand experience, right? So, you know, what 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 does this brand sound like? What does it smell like? What does it, you know, what do the people wear? How, yeah. how all the way down to like the tactical things, like how do you answer the phone and how do you how do you wrap the the clothes and put them in a bag and. Okay. So I was able to to be a part in the early days of of helping to kind of craft that, and then from there, you know, they started to open more stores, and it and it became kind of a, a bigger brand. And I was involved in in that across New York, and then I got a call, and I was recruited by LVMH, so um, Louis, uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, and they they had a concept that was taking off in France that they wanted to bring to the U.S. And they asked if I would come over and run. Um, it was a, my my job was quality director. Okay, and it was in charge of overall kind of consumer experience that in, included the way that stores kind of rolled out and came okay. to life. Um, and it, and the brand was for Sephora. So there was one Sephora in the U.S. Um, and we opened um, one every Friday in the U.S. or Japan for a year and a half. How do you? That's insane. Oh, it was crazy. And I mean, like by the way, like. There's a gajillion people working on this project. I I was focused on kind of the bigger initiatives, and and it was it was really a fantastic time. But so you basically went from kind of the building out the experience of Armani Exchange and starting yeah. to scale that. So like yeah. scaling the brand experience across in a brand as it's entering the U.S., mm-hmm. making its way to now Sephora, right? And which was oh, revolutionary, yeah. right? Because before Sephora, there you. You could only buy those types of prestige products in department stores, okay. where you had to ask someone what the price was. You had to ask someone to to touch it, to feel it, to smell it. And this was around democratizing prestige beauty. So everything in a Sephora store has a price on it. Everything in a Sephora like store has a yeah, full service. right. Yeah. It has a tester, and yeah. you you, um, um, you get to build your own kind of experience there. Yeah, and that that it's funny you say that because like uh, there's a constant discussion and debate. In, in our world around like, is it better to have your business be self-service and have people see the price and just sign up and use mm-hmm. it? Or is it better to have to talk to somebody right. and to find out a price and to, to and to work with someone? Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting because like there are so many different things I think you have to do to get a self-service business humming properly. Yeah. And when it, but when it does, it's magic. It's right. crazy, right? right? The difference. Yeah. And then you also said, so you're opening a store every week. How do you do that? How do you scale the experience? Like, are you changing the experience or do you kind of like, did you lock in like, this is what a Sephora store always, always is? Well, it, a lot of it was already built, right? Okay. Out of what was successful in France. And, okay. and there were a lot of people from the, the French version that came here and helped to roll that out. Okay. I was, I was part of maintaining that, making sure that that was being translated into the different specific environments of the stores here, you know, but there were, there were teams that were like hiring the right people and, and making sure that, you know, there, there were architects and, you yeah. know, all of that stuff. But when it, when it came down to the consumer experience, you know, I, I was um, I was working with the broader team and helping to make the calls. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I learned a lot there, right? Especially about how multiple brands can retain their own brand presence under a big umbrella master brand, right? Because you okay. think about like Armani's got a brand in there, Christian Dior's got a brand in there, Givenchy's got a brand in uh, there, yeah. and they all have to have their own experience within a a fixture or a promotion or a party or an event, but it's always happening within this master brand Sephora environment. So it, it got me to think about how brands relate to one another and how they can also coexist in the same space. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting problem of like, how do you, if you have multiple products, how do they sit next to each other? Can, how many of the values have to be the same and how many of the brand values need to be different? Right, right. And then when when how that's really helped me now is working on larger multi-brand clients like a Johnson & Johnson, a Coca-Cola, a Hershey's company. Like there are, you know, 20, 30, 50 brands that live underneath those big company umbrellas. And although they're individual and different, they they generally ladder to the same ethos or purpose yeah. or, you know, meaning. So yeah, so the the time at Sephora was great. Um, there was an opportunity because LVMH had acquired Donna Karen. And I, I had a desire to get back into the, the clothing side of things. And a lot of my friends from uh, the Armani days were now over at Donna Karen. And I went there and was particularly focused on DKNY and trying to revitalize that brand. And this is towards the very end of the 90s, early 2000s. 
and then September 11th happened. And, you know, uh, it, was a, it was a really tough time in New York for a bunch of industries and, and more importantly, for people, you know, and we, we focused just on taking care of people, you know, people that worked in the stores, people that were in the city, people that were in the neighborhoods, and then the, the people that, that came back to New York and, and, and did one in a shop. And I was proud to be at a brand that stood for New York, yeah, you know, totally. um, you know, and, and unfortunately, like, you know, as what happens in, in, in business time and time again, um, there was some restructuring and then they had to make some decisions. And I, I was let go a little after a year after uh, September 11th, but was really well taken care of by them. And, um, and it was fine. And that that gave me a second to think about, like, well, what do I want to do? It's and, a mo- I mean, we were talking about this yesterday a little bit, but mm-hmm. you, I thought it was interesting you talking about that moment of reflection yeah. for people, like for each other in the city, for, I think for our country, obviously, yeah. um, and also for companies and brands. Right. Like yeah. there was a moment to take a step back and say, what should we be doing? What do we stand for? Right. I, I, think, I think your thoughts on that are yeah, really true. interesting. Uh, thank you for, for bringing that up. And, and there, there's an article from the New York Times Magazine, I think it ran in like 2005, 2006, where Tom Ford gave a big interview. And- you know, I think he he says some really poignant things there, largely around September 11th being a time of reflection and an and and an inflection point in so many people's lives, but also in industry. That at that point, companies and industries were able to, to because they had to pause, they were able to take a leap forward and create more of a digital experience. Right, because it was really the the dawning of the age of you know internet and dot com booms, and and you're starting to get your um, your brand dot coms are happening there. Yeah. You know, this is pre this is still pre Facebook, yeah, and, yeah. and pre Twitter, but you're starting to get people searching online for brands. Yeah, and a lot of the resources that used to be in physical brand physical brand experiences like stores were redeployed into digital brand experiences. You know, so it's one of those things where that tragedy, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it had a direct effect on it, on the way our industries are built today, but but certainly drove a bunch of change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So so then I, through some social relationships, wound up being introduced to a guy who was uh, an executive creative director at McCann Erickson, the advertising agency. Um, and he worked on a, a number of different businesses. And he suggested I come in uh, for an interview, and and they were like, okay, so you went to film school, so you know you know how that works and and how to make film and production, but you also have spent all this time in stores and consumer experiences and understand how that works. Yeah, uh, we have this retail account that that's really exciting, um, and it was Lowe's, the home improvement retailer, and they asked if I would come in and help art direct the TV spots. Okay, because there was a desire to. There was a desire to, to make the stores feel more light and bright and open, particularly in the TV spots, and, and put kind of that promise of an experience out there as they were actually building stores that reflected that. And, and this was a time when the big player was Home Depot. Uh, Lowe's was coming up as a challenger brand, and, uh, and Home Depot stood for home improvement. And the, the line that, that we had at McCann was uh, improving home improvement. And it was all about a better experience. And what was interesting is Sephora was a, was a category game changer for the beauty industry in that it, the physicality of the store was very masculine. It was black and white and red, uh, whereas previously everything was really kind of creamy and pink in, in, mm. the, in the old way that those products were sold. And, and same, you know, uh, Home Depot felt very warehouse at the time, um, very contractor focused. And Lowe's wanted to create a, a feminine version of that, you know, wide aisles, light, bright stores, clear signage, and an environment that f- people felt comfortable asking questions and, and, and looking for help. So, so that, that was great. I wound up um, working on, on the Lowe's account for a little bit. And then there was an opportunity on... Uh, the Johnson and Johnson business, and I, I moved over to J and J at at McCann, and had a pretty successful run on a number of their brands there. Johnson and Johnson acquired Pfizer's consumer products company, and and there was a big uh, media review because okay. they had grown, you know, from you know call it twenty five brands to like more than fifty, so like more than doubled the size. It was a, high, a very high stakes kind of kind of pitch. And, you know, I was on the pitch team and we wound up uh, prevailing and winning and, and winning all of that business um, in the U.S. 
and created a new agency for them called J3. Okay. And, um, and that is part of UM, which is the, the media agency. UM, formerly McCann Media from McCann Erickson. If you're a madman watcher, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of that, that thing that happens. So, so yeah, and then I, I wound up creating a content practice based in media for Johnson & Johnson um, at J3. And I did that for you know, about 10 years. And, and then there was an opportunity to scale what, uh, what we had built to um, all of our clients globally at, at UM. And, awesome. um, and that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. And so, yeah. And today, today like, what is your role today? And what are the brands that you work with? Okay. Because it's quite an impressive Thanks. Uh, cadre um, of brands you have here. Yeah, so so I'm the global chief content officer of UM okay. and the head of UM Studios. Okay. So UM is a full-service media agency that stands for better science, better art, and better outcomes. That's what we, we try and deliver every day Those to our your, clients. Like your values for clients. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we think of it as our, as our, as our purpose and our promise to okay. them, right? Okay, gotcha. And what's different about it from the the kind of my old kind of old school creative days is before you used to kind of have an idea and be like, oh, you know, I'm the creative director. This is my idea. And then you'd have some like research people run around and try and like validate that idea. Right. <laughs> and now, you know, we, everything starts with science. Okay. Right. So because we have so much data about people, particularly because of the media they consume and the way that they behave in media, we take that media behavioral data. We look for insights that then we can pay off in art through media plans, media strategies, content, and we try and drive towards uh, business outcomes for clients. You know, it's like now you can actually get to closed loop measurement where we know that someone's been served something, they actually go down the funnel, they they convert and buy it, and then we can turn that messaging off because it's already worked. Gotcha. Right? Or off for a time until it's time to turn it back on again. Gotcha. Versus the old school kind of reach and frequency model of um, of media planning. And this has been a fast shift, right? Yeah, I mean it's faster than I thought. You know, I mean it, it it's been a, a big move, particularly over the past, I'd call it, you know, five six years. And you know, some clients are more ready for it than others, right? But I think everyone has an aspiration to do the next thing. To be, they're motivated to to change with the media landscape and the way that that our business is, is moving because let's face it like these the a lot of these brands like if they don't change they're they're going to die yeah. right like it, it it's the, that, the whole is, world's different and is that the the challenge that iconic brands are facing today that like they have to change to survive i think it depends category by category but but yeah i i think that there are different belief systems that consumers have today that they that they didn't have when some of those big old brands were built. Yeah. You know, at the same time, I still think that the the scale and the leverage of spend that we have in media on some of those larger iconic brands lets you leapfrog other businesses and do really dynamic and interesting and progressive things um, in in media. Yeah. You know, I, 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 but it, but it's about understanding that like as audiences are shifting to more non ad supported platforms, like we have to come up with new, interesting and better ways to reach them. Because if you're a brand that hangs its hat on serving ads to people, people are in a lot of places where you can't serve them ads anymore. Yeah, that seems like more and more. Right. And right. The, right, and those are the places where they are that's where their attention is. Yeah, it's funny you say that cuz I I feel like if you look at the conversations even, even that happen on Twitter and Facebook, mm-hmm. they've changed. Yeah. Like I, it, it's so clear now that social media is no longer ephemeral. Right. Right? You don't just like send a tweet out about what you're eating for lunch and then it never comes back like right. Whatever you put out there, it's there permanently. It's attached to you. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's shifted conversations. We've seen more conversations go into Slack. We've seen mm-hmm. more conversations go into group text. We've seen more conversations just go into email. Yeah. Because like people don't want to put themselves out there in the same way. And a lot of those channels, there's no way to advertise to. Right. Well, and I think that's also a very interesting, when, when you frame that and look at the Facebook acquisition of WhatsApp, right? Yes. I mean, I think that's exactly what that's about. Oh, yeah. And they've said that their future is going to be to make everything encrypted and secure yeah. and private. And they obviously make all their money with advertising, so they're going to have to figure out right. how to be the Gmail, right? right? Like Gmail has ads in it that are contextually yeah. related to your email, and they there's an argument about how contextually related they are, but yeah. they're still in there. 
and we're used to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I do agree with you. It, 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 we're in a world where thinking audience first, to use your words, like, where is the audience going to be? Where are they spending their time? And how do you want to reach them if more and more of those places no longer um, can survive through advertising? If you can't reach people through advertising, right. then you got to change or you, it's not going to work. You're going right. to miss a lot of the opportunity. Yeah. Definitely. All right, switching topics a little bit here. Okay, I didn't answer your question, though. Okay, well, go ahead, then. Uh, <laughs> okay, call me on it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, because you, you had asked me about um, the brands that... Yes, oh, the brands, and, the brands. And, yeah, and so, yes. you know, so we have a, a really fantastic portfolio of brands here at UM and have the privilege to work on what we think are some of the world's most iconic brands, you know, like Coca-Cola, American Express, Johnson & Johnson, Sony Pictures, BMW, you know, and, and many others. You yeah. know, uh, we also are able to work on some of the the kind of fastest growing um, what we call platform brands, you know, brands that have a media ecosystem attached to them and are doing really innovative things like Hulu and Spotify and Zillow, right? And Fitbit and GoPro, you know? And the, the thing that, that I think helps us get better and better every day is what we can learn from those brands, right? Because the platform brands are trying to become iconic. Yes. And the iconic brands are trying to be more nimble and more audience first and more even direct to consumer that some of those platform brands are. Gotcha. So it's a it's a really interesting time in our industry. Um, and 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 we're able to look at kind of both sides of it and and bring those learnings well, forward. Yeah, and, and the budget and scale of the companies you're talking about is enormous, right? Like the media impact. Um, yeah, right. that we're talking about is very quite large. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it, it it's there are. I mean, yeah, there's there's sizable media budgets certainly. And what what I think is so powerful in that, right, is that it's not it's not around like you know throwing your spend around. No, right, yeah. But it's around having the opportunity because you're backed by those kinds of investments to have the conversations you need to have to get things done. Yeah. Right. So we're able to get to top content creators. We're, we're able to talk really far upstream with, you know, the latest showrunners, the latest writers, the latest new talent, right. Yeah. That, that have ideas and can write ideas into their content for our brands or, or we'll pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, I just had this idea about one of your brands. It's interesting because we're getting more and more incoming calls from creators interesting. Uh, versus like us having to go out and RFP and, and ask for proposals from people. That's a big you know? change, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that change is, has come with the kind of validation and success of what we've been building through a film that we released this year, 5B. Yes. You know, so, so, so let's jump to 5B. Okay. So 5B is that where you were going? That's anyway? where I'm going. Okay, that's where cool. we're going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so 5B feature length documentary yep. that you produced yep. um, that just won at Cannes. Yep. You won multiple awards at Cannes. We did. Yeah. So it won uh, the Grand Prix for Entertainment at the Cannes Lions Festival of Creativity. Congratulations. Um, that's thank insane. You, which is huge. And it's the first time that a media agency has won that award. Okay. Right. And when you think about the other two Grand Prix in entertainment that were awarded, it was the Nike work that featured Colin Kaepernick and the Childish Gambino This Is America music video were for Grand Prix for Entertain or yeah. Grand Prix for Music and Grand Prix for for um, sports respectively. So to create a piece of work that is held up at that that kind of stature and celebrated in that way was really a, a, a proud moment and and validation that brand funded content can not only play in those spaces but also be accepted by audiences and industry. You know, on, on top of that, we also won a Best Director Award, a Best Editor Award, and we're shortlisted on a, a number of other. That's so. amazing and remarkable. And it, it does seem like this is the first example of this ever happening. And the thing that's mind-blowing to me is that this came from a brief yep. that Johnson & Johnson put out there for ads. For nursing. For nursing. So, so yeah, tell me, tell me how we went from yeah, sure. like a brief that J&J gave you that's mm-hmm. like, we, we need help getting this message out into the yeah. world. And that turned into a movie. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You well, know. I think it, so it, it, this is the thing. It all starts with, it all starts with great brands. Like taking it back to your kind of, your kind of thesis is brand is so important, right? And I think one of the most important things about brand is that you know 
who you are as a brand, you know, and you know what you want to accomplish. There used to be this, this big idea around brand purpose and brand purpose is important, but I think what we found in Cannes this year and, and all the work that was awarded is it's not enough to just have purpose. You have to have a point of view, yeah. right? Like you have to have a purpose and then you have to go do something about it. And, you know, and it takes brave clients to do brave work. They, so the, the team at Johnson and Johnson has been for, for many, many, many years have been uh, supportive of nurses and all frontline healthcare workers. You know, when, when you think about people that have the power to change the trajectory of human health and human health care yeah. is those people. Uh, that's and, most of what your healthcare interaction is going to be, yeah. right? When you're in, if you're in the hospital for anything, you see the nurses all the time. Right. And the doctor comes in for a minute and checks and blah, 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 and they go back out, and then the nurses come back. Yeah. Like, that it, is the experience, right? Right. Yeah, certainly. You know, and and by the way, like not discounting the, the incredible work the doctors doctors do either, are great, of course, Love doctors, right? yeah. Um, but you know, I, I so so let's put a, a pin in that for a second, yeah. right? Because we you you just the way that you just brought that story forward um, is exactly how we got to where where we we landed on this, right? Um, so J and J supported nurses and frontline healthcare workers for many years. And they, you know, they do a lot of TV commercials and scholarships and like all kinds of activity around it. But we're finding that the the perception of nurses as, you know, innovative, as um, groundbreaking really wasn't there. Right. And and it was more that, um, you know, they're they're emotional and they're less skilled. And we sat back and looked at that. And I think about the story you just told. Right. About how, you know, nurses are the ones that are with you. They're like in it with you. And the doctor does come in and like, yeah. you know, they give the diagnosis yeah. and they, they constantly, you know, check, check back. And, and, you know, they're certainly there. But when you think about the way that stories are framed it's around different. healthcare, it's different. Yeah. Right. The doctor is the lead character yeah. in, you know, all those medical shows yeah. in most films that yeah. take place, place. And the nurse is usually there as a bit of a foil, right? They're like a marginalized character. Yeah. And often they're, you know, making a mistake or they're a love interest or they're highly emotional. Yeah. But they're not, they're not the people getting it done, which if you've experienced a nurse, like that's what they well, do. I'm, I'm thinking right? of both my kids being born yeah. and then being in the hospital and these nurses coming in and making an enormous impact yeah. on this incredibly stressful moment over and over and over. Right. And the doctor is basically like, vitals are good, things are good. Great, see ya. And right. we're like, how do we feed this baby? Yeah. What do we? How do we sleep? What do we do? <laughs> you know, and it's it's like the nurses that Im- impact the experience so right. much, right? You know, so so basically, if we looked at the media landscape and the way nurses are portrayed, we decided to reallocate some of the media dollars. Right, this is where it goes to. Okay, the benefit of having a large media budget is that you can shave some of that off, particularly yeah. as eyeballs are moving off non-ad supported platforms and create a piece of content. Yeah. So we were able to, to take a small percentage off the media budget and use it to fund this film project. And the, the kind of, you know, premise here was that if, you know, nurses are not being portrayed the way that we all know them to be yeah. in um, premium content, yeah. then we were going to start doing that. And we were going to commission a piece of premium original content that showed nurses at the center as, you know, as innovative heroes and as frontline healthcare workers that are changing the trajectory of human health, which is is what Johnson & Johnson, their purpose is. So, yeah, let me play that back a little bit. Yeah. I, this is, a, I think, a really I'm interesting... jargony, huh? No, well, I think there's a, I think there's a really, <laughs> really interesting point here that I want to, like, yeah. that you actually made to me last night, and it hit home this thing that was like, wow, this is so simple, but people don't think about it like this, which is, like, if nurses are not portrayed in a, in a way that is, like, heroic... Yeah. There's no place, there's no content out there. So you can't advertise against the heroic nurse. Right. And tell people, like, you could be a heroic nurse too. Like, right. we need more nurses. Then you actually have to create that content. Like, yeah. if, there, if it doesn't exist, the place where you want to advertise, in many cases, it may actually make sense to create the content itself yeah. for that audience. Yeah. And the reason why it's so exciting for me is I think about our customers, B2B, a lot of them are B2B or they're small B2C. They're trying to figure out, you know, they have a niche product. We live in a world where it's thousands, millions of products. And it's like, how do I get my message out there? And it's like, well, if you're selling some really specific thing, let's say it's like, I don't know, insurance for dentists, 
And like, you want to like try to figure out where all the dentists and how do I find them? There's some dental associations and stuff. But like, is there a show about dentists that you can like go with all that? That doesn't exist. Like you may want to actually go and make content that's for that group. Right. And in the world we live in, you may be better off like actually building the audience with the content than like renting it because if you can't rent it. Right. Totally. I I think I I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And I I think a way to, to, to kind of, um, to, to, to bring it up is you, we all know the power of seeing someone like yourself in content, Yes, right? And it's no different than the way we're attacking problems around diversity, Yeah, right? If, if we're not showing diverse uh, storylines and people from diverse backgrounds in content, then it, it, they can feel like they don't exist or they're not portrayed. And you also have this thing where there's no opportunity to reach them with the message that you're trying to reach. Yes. I think what you said about the, the you know, creating a show about dentists to reach dentists is absolutely in line with what we're talking about. Yeah. You know? And because of where we are with new digital ecosystems, production efficiencies, you know, now like we can shoot shows on our iPhones, you know? Yeah. And it has democratized that production process to a point where there it's now possible to show all kinds of things, not just things that uh not all kinds of storylines and people, not just the ones that serve the kind of highest common denominator or yeah. highest target. You get you you're it's possible to tell those those more niche or targeted stories. Yeah. Because the advances we've made in production and targeting. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, we, I got too excited there. So, we went off. Uh, it's it. okay. It's but okay. So, so, 5B. So, 5B. So, you got a brief from J&J. Yep. They said, we want to empower more people to be nurses. Well, we want to change, change the perception change the of perception. nurses in popular okay. culture. Yeah. Yep, and then, that. tell me how that went from this brief yeah. to, so we met, to, so, the, to a film. So, we... We made sure that they were committed to it, right? So when we get into an interaction with a client like this, we make sure that there is development money on the table to go have a real conversation with a top-level creator. Um, And we didn't know if this was going to be film or TV, who was going to be attached to it, any of that. And we went out and we had a number of meetings with really like top, top tier Hollywood creators to see how they would attack this problem. Yeah. And for most of them, it was like a light bulb went off. They were like, oh, wow, like I've never even thought about putting a nurse into a show in that way, yeah. right? Or they didn't even understand that like, oh, yeah, that is actually the way nurses are portrayed in in Hollywood and, and yeah. film and TV. Um, so I even think that those conversations that we have that we had in the briefing process were part of the action of changing the way that, that you know, these healthcare professionals are, are portrayed. Um, we did land with, with a team of Paul Haggis and Dan Krause as co-directors, and they came to us with this, this idea that if you wanted nurses to be portrayed as heroes or more heroic, they needed to come up against a really big villain, okay. right? And they needed to to come up against you know some some um, crisis, if you will. And we we knew that we were going to tell the story of nurses responding to a crisis, but we didn't know that it would be uh, the AIDS crisis of the '80s in San Francisco. We thought and expected that we were going to tell a story around the nurses that responded to the shooting at Sandy Hook or Hurricane Katrina or um, something something that was more of a, a current event. Yeah. And as we dug in and talked about the story of 5B and the small group of nurses that basically came together and staged a mini revolt in that hospital when they noticed that patients were not being cared for appropriately, um, they were afflicted with, with HIV, you know, they took charge of that, of that wing of the hospital and created the protocols for not only modern, not only HIV AIDS care everywhere in the world, but also modern day hospice care, right? So it was a, it was a big inflection point in healthcare because you unfortunately were in a position where the doctors could not cure these patients and they knew that they couldn't. Yeah. So if the doctors can't cure them, the only thing left to do is to have these nurses care for them and to care for them with dignity and compassion and create a place that they could go and die. Yeah. 
I mean, so the movie is incredible. Thank you. Um, and so emotional, like in many levels. Like I feel like going through the journey of people not knowing what this is when they think it, you know, they're calling it gay cancer. The reaction from the press and the world around like the division yep. that was created at this moment, the compassion of these nurses going in there and really like fighting against something that no one really understood what it was and then fighting for patience. Right. And it's one of the things that really stuck out to me is that here's this movie that's about something that happened 35 years ago and it feels so relevant right. right now. And you said this before, but J&J is behind this and they're, they're brave and they shouldn't have to be brave. Mm-hmm. I think to like tell this story, but in the world we live in, it does feel like a brave, brave storytelling. Yeah. And J and J is involved. They created the brief. <laughs> yeah. You all have worked on it, but what is their what is their attachment to the film really? Yeah, at this sure. Point? sure, sure, sure. So, so that's what I think is also so groundbreaking about it, right? When we, it came from a brief from a client, Johnson and Johnson, that they wanted to put this story out in the world, and the most important thing is that they were going to honor the the story and the, the sacrifices of these nurses and characters, you know, care t- caregivers that are portrayed in the film, you know, and, and to do that with the utmost respect. Now, there are rules of the road in creating any medium, right? So, so we think about content in three ways, right? We think about our branded content, which is, you know, there's some, some level of brand in it, it's usually created with a media partner or a, you know, influencer, talent partner. And then we think of addressable content, which is like one-to-one data-driven, hyper-targeted stuff. And then this is what we think of as original content, right? And there aren't many films out there that have like a big brand name at the front of the film, yeah. right? There aren't many films that we'll all go pay money to see in movie theaters no. that have brands all the way, you know, through them. Yeah. You know, yes, of course, you're looking at, you know, Spider-Man and the Avengers, and of course there's an Audi in it. And yeah. like we yeah. all we all have kind of like leaned into that conceit, and it's fine because yeah. it it moves the story along. Yeah. You know, I think that the Audi integration in um uh Black Panther is genius, right? But you you can't really do that here, no. right? If the brand, if Johnson and Johnson put themselves forward, they would get in the way of what we're actually trying to accomplish, which is people seeing this story and celebrating these nurses. So they were very, very um, conscious of that and and humble in the way that they present themselves with the film. And in the credit sequence, uh, it says, there's a, there's a single card before it goes to the credit roll that says, proudly commissioned by Johnson & Johnson. And we're very thoughtful about the words there, right? Because it's not presented by, yep. right? They're not mm-hmm. paying for distribution. Actually, yep. it was sold for distribution to Verizon. Also we'll talk insane. all about that, yeah, yeah. Um, which is amazing. And yeah. they've been incredible partners. But but they commissioned the film in the way that like a piece of art is commissioned. Yeah. And and they're the financier and underwriter of the whole project. Yeah. Right? They, they made it happen. Now, the opportunity that comes from this, right, is that they've created this cultural moment around the film. And now they're creating all kinds of more heavily branded content pieces that surround it through its release and distribution, right? So there are ancillary and complementary pieces that hit different kinds of target audiences as well as individual target groups, right? So there are things that speak more to healthcare professionals. There are things that speak more to the LGBT community. There are things that speak more towards moms um, and others uh, that is more branded. Okay. But because the film is happening, now it's opened up this whole conversation that we can have. Gotcha. So the film is- As well as PR and, you know, red carpets and all that kind of stuff. So the film is like the anchor- yeah. And then that being, I mean, this is, I have to imagine, more successful than anyone could have imagined. I don't think you went in there thinking, we're going to go to Cannes and we're going to win in a bunch of categories. We're like, you know, like get distribution. Like you can't assume that with any film. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we, we took a bet. And yeah. I think that's, that's what I mean by they're very brave in yes. doing this with us. Yeah. Right. Because we couldn't tell them what the distribution plan was going to be. Yeah. No we, they, they just had to have faith that we were going to make a great film that people would want to see. Yeah. Because that's that is the econo- that's the flip in the economics, yes. right? Brands generally 
pay to make something and then they pay someone else to put it out in the world so that audiences consume it or have to or have to watch it in yes. a commercial break yeah. right this is a brand funding a piece of content that a distributor is then buying because the con- so that yeah. other people so that audiences will pay to watch it yeah right so through ticket sales and through download and subscription services you know and the like you know also like the life cycle of the content right it it took you know more than 2 years to make it yeah but it it had a festival circuit run it had a theatrical release in the US and movie theaters we're coming up to a TVOD transactional VOD release where it'll be you know available for download on all the cable providers and iTunes and others then it'll have another uh, window release of um, subscription you know VOD around World AIDS Day so you know you're looking at the potential for Netflix and Hulu and Amazon there and then it'll go to ad supported after so I mean there's still three or four more releases of this film yeah and it's and it's because it's there's something of value, right? I mean, it's not an interruption. It's right. like a genuinely valuable piece of content, and it has staying power and is relevant and is a unique enough story. Yeah. And tell me about how like this can be you know through Johnson Johnson or any brand, but how does a brand know that they can do this? Like, how should someone think about evaluating that? So if you are Johnson mm. Johnson, you're like trying to decide. Yes, we can make a movie about. The AIDS crisis and and the first nurses in in five B, yeah. the hospital ward in San Francisco that like responded to this. Yeah. Like, how do you know if you can do it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think that I think that it's part of that is about being savvy and being humble, right? Like, you there's some big brands out there that think they can do anything, right? And then they they put it out there and they get called on it. Yeah, you know, it goes back to to you know purpose and point of view and knowing who you are as a brand. Um, I'll, I'll tell you something that was, it was one of the most powerful moments in the entire process of making this film is we were on the pitch call with the, the clients and we were talking about, you know, again, they were expecting something to be, they knew it was going to be responding to a crisis and they, they knew that we were coming back with the pitch and this was the final, like, we got to green light this movie and we're on the phone with the client. And we tell them that it's going to be the story of HIV in San Francisco through the nurses of 5B. And as we're having the presentation, one of the clients on the phone stopped us and was just like, you know, stop, just stop. And we're like, oh man, this is bad. Yeah. uh Oh, this is bad. Yeah. And the client took a second and my perception is that they needed to take a second to compose themselves. When they came back on the phone, they said, yes, we have to make this movie. And the reason is because she goes, I don't have to hear anything more about this story because I was there. She worked for Johnson and Johnson for over 30 years. Okay. And she said in the early days of the ward, they sent me there with anything that we had that could help these people. That's amazing. I just got chills. Like, right? I, like my hand, it's like, that's I mean, insane. Right? Yeah. And so when you talk about like having permission to tell a story. Yeah. Right? Like this is a company that has stood with this community against this crisis. Yeah. Now to be able to just this past week at the International AIDS Symposium in Mexico City have a, release, a press release that they're going into clinical trials on an AIDS vaccine That's in the U.S. Yeah, you know, you know, they've been fighting to find a cure for this or a way to to eradicate this disease. Wow, for many years. Yeah, and and this is just a part of that program. The thing that's so wild is that it started as a nursing movie. And it's so much more than that, right? Yeah. It's a nursing movie. It's an HIV movie. It's a movie about hope. It's a movie about compassion. And and I think all of those things. Are the are the intangible pieces that go? Yes, this is a film that they could make. You know, I, I think that there's serious work that needs to be done for brands to understand like what's their voice, what what makes this something that X brand wants to put in the world or has permission to put in the world. Yeah, right. Because when you think about when you stop thinking about like branded content, it's funny because there's like this two side thing, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. brand is so important. Yeah, but. 
once you understand brand and who you are and, and what you, you're clear on what you need to say, then you have to focus on audience, right? Because what you're trying to do is really reach an audience and move that audience. If we're creating content for an audience, we need to figure out where this brand has permission to be in that story, right? And, and some of that is form-based, right? Like, if you want it to be a real film, you have to treat it like a real film. And real films have a, there's a certain way that like credits work. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're, you know, generally, you know, uh, they go by like the standards of the, you know, producer's guild and the director's guild and yeah. all those things. And like, you can't, you can't slap your brand on it, right? If you want it to be considered a real film. Um, I, yeah. So I love that, what you just said. And I feel like that is, that I feel like when used properly, that is like when we see a brand doing great work and mm-hmm. improperly, like every brand that falls flat on their face yeah. uh, is, is basically trying to have a stake in a conversation they don't have permission to enter. Right. And it's so interesting, I think, to think about those two pieces is like, all right, you know who you are and what, you, what your brand is and then the audience you're trying to reach and like, how do you reach them in a way that is actually, you have permission to do so. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super and cool. And the thing that's interesting though is it's like, who, who, gives permission, right? The yeah. audience is going to give permission. Yes. Right? And how is the audience going to give permission? They're going to give permission by watching it, by buying a ticket to your movie, yeah. by engaging with it, right? It's, it's not, those permissions are not something a brand can push down. Well, it's also, to your point of more content being on non-ad-supported flat platforms, right. yeah. more and more, you have to rely on their permission. Yeah, right. You know, and I think there's this, there's this interesting... There's a powerful thing that big brands have, and, and I, I think of it as the idea of like reverse endorsement, right? Where if you, in the kind of the old school way, right, the, the brand pays the celebrity and the celebrity goes and says something for them, yeah, right? In this kind of new idea of the kind of proliferation of talent, influencer, content, like there's so much of it. Yeah. Right? That if brands just think of it differently, if a brand is engaging with an up-and-coming talent or or they are integrated in and therefore underwriting an up-and-coming piece of content, right? If you love that person, that talent, or you love that content, then you're going to love that brand. Yes. Because that brand is allowing that person, that person to be to successful. Yeah. That piece of content, that yeah. season two of that, you know, um, thing and we're having more and more conversations with showrunners and writers of TV shows that are like, hey man, you know, in 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 the end of this season, you know, I have this big idea, but it pushes me over budget. We can integrate a brand, and then I can like get the extra location oh, or wow, the four crazy. more guest stars yeah. or whatever. And it it's a it is a value conversation to make the content better. That's cool. Right. Yeah. It's it's not um, it's not so much a like transactional thing, and and when it comes from that place of making the content better, making the experience for the consumer better, it's I, th- I think that the table set for it to be successful. I think also to your point earlier of having more representative people to rally behind and companies and brands like from a diversity perspective yeah. and inclusion perspective. I think there's an answer here that you're you've tu- you basically said, which is like the up and coming folks who need someone to take a risk on them, right? Like take a risk, yeah. Like this, there's a lot of opportunity, and we also know that there's a lot of people who are underrepresented in yeah. media and content. And if we can represent them better, that's going to be good for them. They're going to be more successful. That's going to let people have somebody that they can see that is the same as them. Yeah, they feel like not alone. They're a part of something. And those are the types of risks I think brands should be taking. Definitely. Yeah. You know, it, make, it makes me think about a campaign we did last year um, for Sprite and with Spotify. Okay. Right? Um, we were able to bring two clients together. And what was so cool about it is like Sprite, Sprite is a, is a fantastic big brand that has had a place in hip hop culture for a really long time. Yeah. Right? But we, we sat back and had some really strategic conversations with them about like, where did they want to be in that conversation? And the, inter- the most interesting place was to get like underneath hip hop culture and prop it up, 
right? And to bring opportunities for those up and coming artists and not just the artists, but the people on their teams, okay. right? So we created a, um, a series called Breakthroughs that ran on Spotify behind the paywall for subscription. And then there was other content that ran in front of the, the paywall for the ad supported platform. But we took a handful of up and coming hip hop artists told their kind of breakthrough story of how they're changing oh, cool. the game and, cool. and breaking through in hip-hop, and then went and profiled three people on their team. So their stylist, oh, the, their guy on their mixing board, their producer, their writing partner, and also like propped them up as the, the people that are under the newest up-and-coming stars. That's awesome. You know? But again, it comes back to like, okay, what's their purpose in this? What are they trying to do? It, it, it can't be to sell more stuff, yeah. right? It needs to be to, to make a cultural shift, yeah. right? Yeah. If, if you're putting content out there that's solely based on trying to sell more stuff, it, the consumer smells it. You know, that, that's, that, is, that is an ad. Yeah. Um, and when that's when, not a piece of engaging content. That and when it's their permission, right? When it's right. the audience's permission yeah. and they're picking and they can smell it it's, and you, can't, you basically can't reach them. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a crazy world we're living in now. It's cool. It's, it's exciting. Cool. It's awesome. Um, you never get bored at yes. work. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about, obviously, big brands. What do you think small brands can take from this? What do you think, like, if you were to jump into, like, a 30-person company, maybe there's, like, two or three people in marketing trying to figure out how to do this. What do you think they should, how do you think they should be thinking about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it can be really overwhelming, right? It can be really, really overwhelming. And I think that there's some core things that I learned super early in my career that I still take with me today that I think can work for any brand at any size or any company at any size as they're trying to figure out what okay. their brand is, right? And it's the stuff that I talked about with the Armani Exchange example, right? It's like, okay, you may be a brand that, I think you said selling in, it's insurance, dental, dental insurance. insurance. For, right. I was trying to pick the most boring thing. Yeah, yeah, no, of. but, yeah. but right. So, okay. So, <laughs> so you have dental insurance company A and dental insurance company B. What's the differentiator between the two, right? Like, okay, it might be price. It might be something else. But if you want to get into the conversation around brand, like what does your brand feel like? Like go through an exercise and like, if your brand was a song, what song would it be? Right. If your brand, if you walked into a space, what does your brand smell like? Yeah. You know, what what you know, what are the other touch points of the brand? And look, like you may never play that song, you may never have that fragrance, but at least it starts to form in your mind what you are, so that you're a more fully, fully formed brand versus your competitor. Yeah. And then within that. Once you have an understanding of like, okay, who you are, how would you express yourself to the world, then you can start to have conversations around like, okay, well, what are the forms of content? What are the, what's the purpose of this brand? And, and what's the point of view? What, what do we have to say, right? It's like, okay, we're going to go make that dental show. Well, what are we going to say in that dental show? Yeah. You know, what, what, what is it that we're trying to get across to people? Yeah. For someone who's not thinking about brand those questions are going to help them understand like some of the values they already have. Yeah. And one of the things I think about is it's kind of like you have a brand, whether or not you want to, right. You have one. Uh, If you're not investing in it, you're not thinking about the experience. People know that. Like, so if you're not investing and think you should be, try to figure out how to. And if you are investing and you're following your instincts, um, try to find a way to really get to a, a simpler way of talking about a shared, a shared, knowledge instead of words and things that can help you make decisions. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. I also think it's important to figure out like who owns that brand. Yeah. You know, in your within your organization. Within your organization. Right. Okay. Because, you know, there's this there's this old famous Ogilvy quote that, you know, you, you rarely find monuments and parks to groups of people, right? That like someone has to be the decision maker. Someone has to say like that is our brand and that's not our brand. That person should be a brave person. Yep. Right? Because if you think about the 5B example, right? Like, so we did, we did this, we did 5B. It would be very easy to come out next and do like another documentary. Yeah. Right. But if we do something over here, yeah. then you have room to play on this entire spectrum. Yeah. You know, so the second thing you do 
opens up the the aperture of what your brand stands for and the sandbox that you can play in. That's I hadn't really thought about it as like the second thing, but it, that is interesting. Yeah, because like whatever you do is going to define yeah. what is comfortable within the brand. Right, and it's yeah. all around context. Right, yeah. it's like put a stake in the ground and do something. Yeah. And then make sure you get the second thing right so that all the space between the first thing you did and the second thing you did, you have permission to play. That's cool. That's a simple idea too. It's like when you're pushing yourself to think about it in that way. Like mm-hmm. what, what space do you want to operate in? Because if you right. only take a tiny step, then yeah, everyone's going to feel uncomfortable right. with the next wild idea. It's going to be that much harder. Yeah. And in this world where like it's all about disruption and things are changing constantly, like you don't want to put yourself in a really small box. Yeah. Okay, so I'm coming mostly from the B2B world. You're in the B2C world. We're talking about a, a world we live in today that I think not everybody thinks about it this way, which is like our audiences have permission to what they watch. There's a lot of places where they're going to watch and spend their time and their attention where you can't advertise to them. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's commonalities. Like my customers that are businesses, a lot of them drink Coke. Some of them drink Sprite. Some of them just don't drink any soda. They only drink LaCroix. Like there's yeah. a bunch of different things. And or, so, or Dasani or Smart Water. Or Dasani or Smart Water. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because like in a lot of ways, I think I'm just trying to reach people yeah. who happen to be in companies. And you're just trying to reach people who have these different demographics yeah. and tastes. So in this weird way, like B2C and B2B are closer than they've ever been. Like we're trying to reach the same people. Yeah. So what advice do you have for me? What do you advice do you have for anyone in the B2B space when they think about trying to reach like an average consumer? Yeah. Uh, you had me until you said average consumer. Okay. Because the thing is, I and it will but that might be the answer to the question. Okay. I don't think there is an average. They should try and reach their average consumer. Yes. I think they should try and reach their high value audience. Okay. Right? Because that's the person that's going to be most valuable for them to convert. Yeah. There's tons of media out there. There's tons of ways to reach people out there. That also means that there's the opportunity for a lot of waste. Right? Yes. So I think being really focused on who's driving your business and what kind of person that is, and then figuring out how to reach them is yes. how you drive success. So I guess to kind of rephrase the question, if you're going after like your best high target person, yeah. But you're doing that in a way where they have control mm-hmm. over the media they're consuming. Yeah. How do you how do you think about that? I think you got to understand what it is that they like and lean into and want, okay. right? And then what we do, and 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 I think what we have the 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 privilege of doing because of the size is we you know we we lean into the authentic voices in media that speak to them, okay. and we and we help turn them on for our brand. You know, it's like for a a smaller business. Um, they may want to look at engaging local influencers. You know, they may want to look at figuring out how to drive great engagement across their, you know, Facebook page, or start using their Instagram channel in a way that that is more more targeted, more, targeted, more focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like, are you, you know, the 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 dentist example is is a, a good one, but it's also tough, right? It's yes. like, you know, most people have teeth, Yeah, you know? <laughs> so let's go out there with a, with a big, you know, a spray gun and try and get everybody. Yeah. Right. But do you drive more margin on your whitening product? Yeah. You know, so you're trying to make sure that you're driving people that are more beauty inclined or may be willing to, to get into that with you yeah. or, are you trying to drive, you know that people in your practice, like once they're in, they stay for a really long time. So you may be going after families because you know that like the, the mom and dad are going to bring, you know, two to two to four kids in and those kids are going to be with you. Forever, through, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, so, so I think you have to be strategic and then tailor your content towards that high value target. Yes. So it's almost like, to reach, I won't say average, but to reach consumers, high value consumers, in a way that is like on their on their terms, yeah. it is really about getting really, really focused about what their interests are, where they spend their time, what are the other factors you can put into it, mm-hmm. so that you can make it focused enough that it will resonate. Right. Okay. You know, and and that you know, and that's where you find the permission. 
right? Because if you're a dental office that's focusing on driving your whitening product, suddenly you can start talking about beauty. Yes. Right? If you are a dental office that's focused on a pediatrics practice, it's probably going to be really weird if you start talking about beauty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Awesome. Um, Brendan, thank you so much for letting us come to your space. Thanks. And have this conversation. It's been awesome to have you on Brandwagon. Thank you so much. Thank this you. has been very cool. Thanks. Thank you.